Hi, this is Pastor Dave Rosales, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. If you've been impacted by these Bible studies, we'd like to hear from you. Whether you're listening through iTunes, Google Play, or any other platform, tap on the stars and leave us a review. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. If you'd like to support this ministry, would you consider partnering with us? Visit our website at calvaryccv.org and click on Give. You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. So beginning here, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 7, reading to verse 10, Paul writes, Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. And therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness, according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. And so we're concluding our study here in 2 Corinthians as Paul begins to give his closing thoughts. And as you know, Paul has been challenging the church to examine itself to see whether or not Christ was within them. Paul is concerned. Paul is concerned for them because they've been infected with bad teaching. Remember always that what you believe is what you do. Your life is always going to be simply an expression of what you actually believe. The Proverbs tells us even a child is known by its deeds. And so your character is exposed by the way that you live. And when you're a Christian and bad doctrine begins to infect your life, it's going to show up in the way that you live. And Paul is concerned about that. And so Paul has been saying, examine yourself to see whether or not you have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, because some in that church have been infected with bad teaching. And the bad teaching has created the fruit of disunity as well as carnal or unspiritual living. We already saw how he was referring to, he spoke of contentions, and he spoke of jealousies, outbursts of wrath. He spoke to them concerning backbitings and whisperings of conceits and tumults. Now, these are not the kinds of things that you want your church to be known for. And as he was speaking of these things, he also spoke of something called selfish ambition. Now, selfish ambition is the motivation to elevate yourself above someone else. Selfish ambition is seeking your own interests first. It's a desire to place self above others. And selfish ambition easily provokes contentions and disunity in the church. So remaining united in the face of opposition is of paramount importance. This is because Satan desires to provoke believers into opposing one another instead of him. I see that taking place today, that there are Christians who are at war with one another rather than uniting in opposition against the enemy. 
because the enemy wants to provoke us. He wants to destroy us. He wants to do whatever he can to uh, cause us not to be able to be sharing the truth of the gospel. And so he provokes us to contention amongst ourselves. And Paul is, uh, often writes concerning uh, his warnings against such attitudes of carnality and divisiveness. When you look at the book of Philippians, for example, one of the New Testament books, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The word conceit means excessive pride. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So instead of selfish ambition and conceit, that incorrect sense of self, we're to value other people. We need to learn to be other-centered, not self-centered, because that protects us from selfish ambition. It protects us from self-importance. And so with this in mind, Paul is making it clear that he's praying for them. Notice again verse 7 how he says, I pray to God that you do no evil. Now, he, he's saying this isn't so that we appear approved and, and become regarded as genuine ministers. It's so that I don't have to wield my apostolic authority when I come to see you. He's saying my prayer in verse 7 is that you should do what is honorable. There should be fruit that is evident in them that reveals genuine salvation. They should have, have faith that is revealed in repentance, a desire for righteousness, sincere holiness, a willing obedience to God through his word, a love for the Lord, a love for other people. This ought to be the evidence of your walk with God. This is a fruit that evidences a real faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is making it clear that his desire for them is that they live in such a way that God is glorified. And it's such a strong desire that he lifts them before the Lord in prayer concerning this. You see, Paul is what you would call a shepherd. He's a genuine pastor. And he made sure to lift the people up to the Lord in prayer. And that's something that he regularly did. You see it often in his writing. Again, in Philippians, for example, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he said, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. For the Ephesian church, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, he prayed he pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. To the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, he prayed that the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, as a shepherd, was concerned for the, for the sheep. He is concerned for the church, and he lifted them up in prayer. And that's what he's doing here in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 13. He's saying, I pray to God that you do no evil. I desire you to grow. I desire you to grow in such a way that, that I don't have to bring correction. You see, my prayer for the Corinthian is this, that they would do no evil is what he's saying. For if they do no evil, I won't have to exercise my apostolic authority, Paul would be saying. He'll not have to discipline them. And God will not humble him among the church. He desires them to grow in grace and to do that which is morally right. So as you look at this, his prayer reveals that he desires them to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, that's the prayer of a genuine shepherd that people will live in such a way that is appropriate for someone who's going to heaven. 
that the way that they live is so obviously touched by God that people around them who may not know the Lord would say, honestly, something has changed in you. Something is different about you. His desire is for people to live in such a way that there is an actual demonstration that God is amongst them. And that's what we pray for, for people to live in an appropriate way. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he had prayed and said that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So this calling has taken us from the present age. It's placed us in, into the coming one. In Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So we're citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, we're to, as believers, live in such a way that we bring honor to the king. The gospel we've received and that we share is one that promises transformation. In chapter 3, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians, Paul said that we were being transformed into the image of Christ. You see, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Our life ought to be an evidence that God has done something in us, has transformed us in a mighty fashion. You know, I was sharing with the first service today that in, in our fellowship, um, there, there's a brother who comes to our church who's known me since I was 14 years old. It's hard to believe he's known me 10 years. That's amazing. He's known me since I was 14. We went to high school together, and, and uh, your life ought to be moved in such a way, transformed in such a way that people who knew you best would say something different has happened to you. You're a different person. And so he and his wife were in our church for a year, for a year. And so she wrote me on Facebook, and she said, may I ask you a question? Did you go to Sierra High School? And, uh, you know, and, and I looked at the name of the person writing me, and uh, the last name is, is not a common name. And I only knew one person by that name. So I looked at her page, and I looked to see who her husband was, and it's, it's him. So I, I wrote, and I said, yes, and tell your husband hi for me. You know, I, I, I think of him often and all of that. And so she writes, and she says, well, we've been there for a year, she said. But he looks up there, and he says, that's, that's David. But I knew a guy named David Rosales when I was in high school. That can't be him, you know, because he and I used to get in trouble. I could tell stories on him, too. We used to get in trouble together from the time we were 14 years old throughout high school. And so, yeah, I realize that I'm not 14 anymore. I understand that. And a lot of people will say, oh, you just outgrew that. No, you don't outgrow sin. You refine it. You don't outgrow it. You have to repent from it. If you tried to lie when you were a kid, you probably were busted. But if you keep lying long enough, you can run for a political office. No doubt. <laughs> you get good at it. You know, it's, it's one of those things that you polish with practice, right? You steal something, you get caught. You work at it, you become a good thief. That's just what sin is. It's not that you outgrow it. Who here has outgrown sin? You don't outgrow it, you refine it. It's been said there is no sinner like an old sinner. And there's truth to that. Because the first time you lied, you probably got busted. But if you work at it, you learn. You stole something, you got caught. Somebody figured it out. You work at it, you learn. That's just the way it is. And so 
the gospel is to transform us. And so my friend is looking up here for a year at a guy he knew in high school, and yet he's saying it can't be him because he and I go back that long, and he remembers the life I lived. Listen, when God grabs hold of your life, he changes you. He transforms you. He makes you new. That's what the gospel promises. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You are being transformed, he said, into the image of Christ. And this calling that God has given to us is one that is holy. We have been called to live separated or holy lives. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul said, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Ephesians 4, verse 1 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The calling that we have been called by is a holy calling. And so we live in a way that is holy. The one who's called us is holy. The life we live as one of his children is one of holiness. In 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, the apostle said it like this. He, he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So walking worthy speaks of living a life that brings honor to God. And such a life pleases the Lord because it's earmarked by good works and growth. And that's why he's praying this, that we would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, as he says in Colossians 1.10, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, walking worthy, walking in a way that's appropriate. We preach a holy message, and our lives should reflect that we've been transformed by the message we give to other people. Now, that doesn't mean that you live a sin-free life. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. And, you know, I've had guys, I've, I've met guys who say, oh, no, that you, they are sinlessly perfect. Talk to the wife. Nobody is sinlessly perfect. We're all in the process of being purged, and, and it's called the process of sanctification, and we're moving from glory to glory. We're moving from place to place, and, and God is being more evident in our life over a lifetime, but nobody arrives this side of heaven to that state of perfection. And so, no, I'm not trying to encourage people here to be, to be in any way uh, discouraged because you're not walking in a perfect fashion. Please don't, I hope I don't uh, preach that way and make you misunderstand. No, what I'm saying is that if you fall, you still can get up. If you fail, you still can be forgiven. You can move forward in the Lord Jesus Christ because he's filled with grace and he'll help you to do that. And all I'm saying is what the word of God says to us is to proceed forward, to move forward so that the Lord may continue moving in us so that we may walk in a way that's appropriate. I, I, I believe in, I preach a message of walking worthy of the gospel because the gospel is that kind of transforming message. And so Paul is praying for them and he's praying that, that they will do, notice verse 7, that they do no evil. That word evil speaks of something that causes injury or trouble. He's saying, I pray that you do no evil, that you don't cause injury, that you're not troublesome. I, I, I will not be forced to use my authority to exercise church discipline if you do no evil. And it's interesting in verse 7 when he says, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable. I'm not trying to give myself the appearance of apostolic authority to other people. I'm fully aware, he's saying, that some are challenging my authority, but my motives are pure. My desire 
is that you do what is honorable because it honors God. When he speaks of doing that which is honorable, that word honorable, it, it speaks of being beautiful by reason of purity of heart and purity of life. He's saying, my prayer is that you're honorable, that you have good testimonies of the grace of God. Why? Because this way of living is eternally profitable for you. Live godly lives. It results in ministry to others and a blessing to you. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, bodily exercise profits little. And that's true. I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've known guys who work out a lot and, you know, and they're just so ripped and so big and so... I, I remember someone, that their biceps were like 22-inch 22, 22 biceps, huge thighs, you know, real lats, you know, they're, they're uh, so thick. That woman was so big, you know. I, I've, I've, I've seen them, I've seen them. Bodily exercise profits a little. It does, and, and you know, so if you, if you have a workout regimen, that's great. You know, workout, that's cool. You know, workout, you know, I, but I've seen them, the guys who have worked out for a long time and their bodies are all chiseled and their face looks like a prune. You know, you, you can't bench press with your face. Let's just put it that way. Bodily exercise profits a little and there's nothing wrong with it. And work out if you can. Marie tries to get me to work out. And I do. I, I roll off of the couch and, <laughs> and I go to the refrigerator because she's too lazy. <laughs> That's not true. I'm lying. I don't go to the refrigerator. Bodily exercise profits little, but godliness, godliness is what we're supposed to exercise ourselves to. He says, godliness is profitable to all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. When you're godly right now, living a godly life, a separated life, bringing glory to the Lord, your life is blessed right now, but it's also profitable for eternity. So working out has its temporary benefit, he's saying, but living a godly life and well, that's profitable for eternity. He says in verse 7, this is my desire, even if some, even if to some, we appear, he says, to be disqualified. Some may say that we are not true apostles. And that doesn't matter to me as long as you're living right. For, verse 8, we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Even if it seems that Paul is disqualified and in the wrong, well, the fact is, he's not in the wrong. He has in no way violated the message of the gospel, either in his teaching or in the way that he lives. He lives the gospel. And as he lived the gospel, he did it with purity of heart. He did it with a clean conscience. He had earlier said in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 12, we can say with confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all our dealings, we have depended on God's grace, not on our own human wisdom. And that is how we have conducted ourselves before the world and especially toward you. We in no way have violated the message of the gospel. We can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. He goes on in verse 9, for we are glad 
when we are weak and you are strong. Why are we glad when we're weak and you're strong? Because we don't have to exercise our authority. We don't have to bring church discipline. When, when you're not strong, when you're not walking right, is when I have to exercise my authority. So I am blessed when we don't have to exercise that. And so, verse 9, this also we pray that you may be made completely mature. My greatest desire is for you to, to grow up, to mature, making any discipline on my part to you unnecessary. So my great desire is for you to mature in the things of the Lord. My, my desire for every believer, Paul would say, is for them to grow up. Galatians 4.19, he said, My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. That's my great desire. That's my agony, to see you mature in the things of the Lord. You see, in the Christian life, every believer goes through a series of growth stages. In 1 John, John gives us insight. I'm going to take a moment to share with you out of 1 John 2, verses 12 through 14, because John gives us insight into stages of maturity, stages of growth. In 1 John 2, 12 through 14, John the Apostle wrote, and he says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you've known the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you've known him who's from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. And so he begins, and I'm, take the, I'm going to take this out of order. But John speaks of these little children. And he said, I'm writing to you, little children, because he says, you know your sins are forgiven, and you've known the Father. Listen, when you first got saved, those are the basic things. That's what you basically learned, right? My sins are forgiven. Do you remember that day? Do you remember how that was when, when you heard the message in whatever form it came? Some people were raised in Christian homes, and they may not remember that day. And others may remember it very well. I remember it very well, but others may not because their mom and their dad raised them in the faith of Christ and all. So they can't say, well, certain day I became a Christian. But there are others like myself who can say, no, I remember that day, December 27, 1970. I was 20 years old. I can remember that day. I remember it very well. But what did I know at that time? What was it that I learned? I learned that my sins were forgiven and I have come to know the Father. That's basically what it is. You see, the day I got saved, I, I was supposed to have gone to, to, to party. I've shared this. I'll, I'll abbreviate this very quickly, but I was supposed to party. I had a friend of mine who lived across the street from me, and and he would receive kilos of marijuana from Thailand. And the way they would receive those kilos is they used to put them in plastic bags and stuff them in stuffed animals. This was before you had the dog sniffing and everything. And so they would ship it to LAX. And my friend would go and pick up his package in LAX, and it would be a kilo. Then he would bring it back and open it up, and, and we would smoke the dope. That's how it was. And so... He was supposed to have received this, this uh, kilo and all, and I was supposed to go smoke some pot because I really loved smoking marijuana. And so we were going to go smoke some pot at his house. 
And so the way I got saved is I was actually uh, supposed to go to his house, but I went to a friend of mine, his name is Bill, and, and I told him, I can't go with you to this Maranatha concert. I've got something else to do, which was to go get high. And that's when I got basically kidnapped, taken to a Maranatha concert, and that's when I gave my heart to Christ. And so when I came home, I went directly across the street to the house where I had been partying now for quite some time. I went to that house to go tell my friends that I've given my heart to Christ. And, and the only things I knew is that, that I have come to know the Father and my sins are forgiven. That's all I knew, just like anybody else. I didn't know anything yet. I didn't know the books of the Bible. I didn't know anything at all. No scriptures, only, only that once I was lost and now I'm found. Once I was blind, now I see. You know, those are the things. I was living in despair and now I have joy. I have my sins forgiven. That's a little child. And that's what he's speaking about. That's what he's saying. Amen. Amen to you who understand that. that that's the bottom line. Is that you, your sins have been forgiven. And you've known the Father. And man, I'm telling you, that's all I knew. So I went across the street. My friend wasn't there. But his mom was there. And a couple of sisters were there. And I still remember sitting down at the dinner table with them. And, and, and looking at her. her name was Mrs. Nava. And I looked at Mrs. Nava, and I said, I want you to know something. And I shared with her the little I had learned. I was lost, and now I'm found. I said, I gave my heart to Christ today. I've become a Christian, Mrs. Nava. My life is different. And, and she eventually came to faith in Christ. I took her, her daughter, one of her daughters. We called her Baby Doll. Her name was Mary Lou. We took Mary Lou to church with us. Mary Lou gave her heart to Christ, and God began to move. And all I knew at that time was, as I was, I'm, I was lost and now I'm found. I was sinner, now I know God. That's what a little child knows. But that doesn't mean you can't be used by God to bring people to the one who can tell them. You know, and that's what I did. It's like that woman at the well who went and got the men after Jesus spoke to her. And, and she goes and talks to the men in town because they were the only ones who would talk to her. And she went and spoke to him. And she said, come and hear a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Could this be Messiah? She didn't know anything other than she met Jesus Christ and she wanted others to know him too. And that's a little child. You know the Father. And there's something inside of you that goes off. And that's the little child. But you move into maturity, and that's why he speaks concerning a second stage. He speaks of, and like I said, I'm taking it out of order, the, he speaks of young men. The young men he's speaking to, it's interesting how he speaks of them. These are warriors. These are those who are fighting the good fight. These are the ones who overcome the wicked one. Their strength comes from knowing God, knowing God's word, and their application of it. And so when you become from a child, you're in the word of God, you're beginning to fellowship with him, you're built on the foundation of knowing God and knowing your sins are forgiven, you begin to put on the armor of God. You start putting on that helmet of salvation. You start putting on the breastplate of righteousness. You gird your loins with truth. Your feet are, 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 are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You have a shield of faith and you have the sword of the spirit and you go into war. You are set up for war. You are a warrior and you stand up and you fight the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we do. That's the young man. That's the young man. This is the guy who goes to work ready for battle. This is the guy who goes to school and the woman who goes to school ready for battle. I was a brand new Christian. I was in secular college and I would gear up. I would gear up because there's going to be a war today. Every time I went to a secular class, every time I went into a secular college class with, with professors who were anti-Christ, 
I was going to have a battle, and I knew it. And so I made sure to have that armor prepared because there's going to be a war. I still remember one of my cultural anthropology professors at Cal, Cal State Fullerton and how he, how he said uh, that uh, he was asking about universals and, and uh, what is the universal he was asking. And so people began to answer in a culture, what is the universal? What do all cultures have? Well, all cultures have music. Well, yes, that's a universal. All cultures have a language. Oh, yes, that's a universal. All, 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 uh, all cultures have marriage-type ceremonies. Yes, that's a universal. So you're speaking of things that all cultures, regardless of whether it's in the American continent, whether it's in the African continent, the European, or whatever, they all have these things. They're called cultural universals. And then one of the students said to this professor, well, how about fear of God and religion? How about religion? And I'll never forget this cultural anthropology professor who says, yeah, that's the one thing I really hate. That's really one thing I hate, is that there's people who have a belief in God in every culture. That is a cultural universal. But his antagonism was obvious, and he voiced it. I was going to school not to hear his atheism. I wasn't going to school to be evangelized into doubting my faith. And yet he felt it was his responsibility to tell us how much he hated God and religion. So I would gear up. I would go to school. I would make sure I've been in the word. I was prepared because if there's going to be a battle, then I'm going to take out the sword of the spirit. I'm going to put up the shield of faith. I'm wearing my helmet. I got my feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. You know, that's what we're going to do. No, I didn't stand up and pick fights with the professor. I didn't do that. I wasn't one of these belligerent, arrogant students who want to go and argue and all of that, but I was ready, and I would do it. And there were times I had this one professor at Cal, Cal Poly Pomona. I went to six universities and, and colleges, just so that you know. And it doesn't matter. I didn't graduate, but I went. <laughs> so I was at Cal Poly, and um, I had a professor who was teaching marriage in the family, and this man was a homosexual professor, and he was sharing on marriage and the family. I wrote a paper, and the paper I wrote related to the, the man being the priest of the home and the things that a man brings into the house. And this was back in the early 70s. And, and so after class, you know, he and I had a conversation. First, he graded my paper, and I got a, an A, I'm, I'm boasting, but I got a good grade on it. But he and I took a walk afterwards at the end of the class. I walked with him to his car. And he's talking to me, and he's saying to me, I've never heard that before. I've never heard what you're saying before. So I had an opportunity as a young student to tell him about what God does in a man's life. You see, you walk in ready. You walk in, and that's the young man. And so you have the, the new Christian. Your sins are forgiven. You know the Father, but you're a young man. You're geared up for battle, and you go to war. And then he speaks of the older man, the Father. And, and notice what he said. I read it to you. I'll, I'll read it again. He said, you have known him who's from the beginning. You started out with the joy of knowing who he is, and then you went through battle after battle, and, and skirmish after skirmish, and now you know that you know that you know. 
There's, there's nobody that can convince me, and it's not because I'm an intellectual. Yeah, I'm not. But there's nobody who can convince me that God isn't alive. There's nobody who can tell me that Jesus Christ isn't the Savior. You can not You can have every argument you want, but I know that I know that I know that Jesus Christ is Lord. I know that. I'm a father. That's what I am. In the body of Christ, he's writing to men like me. I have walked with the Lord for almost 50 years. I've taught the word of God for 47 years. I have pastored this church for over 39 years. I'm a father in the body of Christ, and I know my God. I have a relationship with my God, and that's what he's speaking about. So you start out as a child, you go into battle, you become battle-hardened, and you hold fast to Jesus Christ to the very end. And then one day, you hear him say, well done, my good, my faithful servant. And that's all you have to want to ever hear, is to hear that. That's the bottom line. And so that's what you are. So the psalmist in Psalm 71, 17, and 18 says it like this. He says, oh God, you have taught me from my youth. To this day I declare your wondrous works. Now also when I'm old and gray-headed, oh God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. God has called the fathers to speak to the young. We're not to be discarded, kicked to the side, have no value because we're not cool. No, nowhere in the Bible does it say old men get trained up by the babies. No, it's the babies who are trained up by the older men. That's what God has called us to do, to be examples. Yeah, the day's going to come when I'll take off my pastoral armor. I'll take it off. I'll settle into life in a different way. But I'll always be a father of the faith to many and in the body of Christ because you never retire from serving Jesus. You always serve Jesus Christ. You always, and every day, my pastor taught me this one day in conversation with Chuck Smith, my pastor Chuck Smith, and Chuck said, I said, Chuck, when are you going to retire? He said, every day that I walk with Jesus is one more day of experience with him that I can give to somebody else. That's a father. And so that's what God, God has called us to. And so maturity occurs through applying what Paul has been writing Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed, according to your word. Your word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against you. So his words were intended to correct them, to bring them to maturity. Therefore, verse 10, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. I write these things, and I don't want to use sharpness. My desire is to build you up. I don't want to have to correct your behavior. I'd rather commend you than to correct you. In 2 Corinthians 2, he had said at verse 3, I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. You bring me joy because you're walking right with God. And thus, I don't want to bring correction. I want to build you up. And so I don't want to use my authority to have to deal with you. I want to edify you. And then finally, verse 11, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love 
and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And so he concludes as we will. He concludes his letter with four basic admonitions. First, he says to them, farewell. Then he goes, become complete. Become complete. When he says become complete, aim for maturity. Aim for a perfection. In other words, intentionally grow in the things of the Lord. And this is something that you decide to do. Maturity in the Lord is the result of faithfully applying his word to your life. It, it doesn't simply happen on its own. It is carefully cultivated. You see, there are those today who attend church, and I may be speaking to some today, either here or online, who attend church, who think themselves to be Christian because they attend church. But Jesus spoke concerning this in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 13. He said at verses 23 through 27, it reads, Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he'll answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you'll say, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. He'll reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be people who are trying to get in, he says, and will not. Why? Because they didn't know him. Noah, preacher of righteousness, built an ark to the saving of his family. And the Bible says to us, when the flood came, and, uh, and that ark began to rise with the floodwaters. And just prior to that, when the rain began to hit, that God closed the door. There came a time when all of those people whom Noah had as he had been preparing that ark, there came a time when the people who probably mocked him, I mean, there he is, it hadn't rained on the face of the earth or anything like that. And they're asking, why are you building that? What are you going to do with that? And he preached repentance even as he continued to work. Well, when the rain began to hit and the waters began to rise, no doubt there were people who wanted to enter in, but God, God had closed the door. It was too late. Soon, very soon, there's going to be a rapture. We're going to be taken up. And it may happen during some church services where, the, where God says, come up here, and we're taken. Can you imagine that? Just the thought of that for a moment. What a blessing to think about that. Come on up. Come up here. Bang, we're gone. And then there are people sitting around in the church going, what happened? Where'd they go? Members of a church sitting there when it happened. Because that does happen. That will happen. There will be people who are sitting in a church. And so Jesus said, you make every effort to enter the narrow door. And I guess the question at this point is obvious. Have you?
made every effort. And the effort is simply to trust in him so that you can enter into his way. And so there are people who believe themselves to be Christian, but Paul is saying you need to become complete. You need to aim for perfection. If you aim for perfection, you reach excellence. So maturity in the Lord is a result of applying by faith his word. He also says, secondly, be of good comfort. Be of good comfort. Even though I've admonished you, do not be overwhelmed, but be exhorted. In Deuteronomy 8, 5, it says, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. In Hebrews 12, 11, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. You see, God's desire for his children is that we have hope and that we have peace. You see, we can't have hope in this world. There is no hope in this world. There's only hope in Christ. And we have our hope in him. We trust in him. And God is our hope. In the book of Romans 15, verse 13, it says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. You see, no matter what we go through, we go through. We don't stay there. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't stay there. We don't, we don't put a tent there. We pass through there, and we're just passing through this life. Yeah, we go through tough times. All of us do. Yes, we go through disappointment. Yes, we go through pain. Yes, we go through sorrow. Yes, we go through grief. But we go through those things. We don't stay there because our hope is in the Lord, Jesus Christ, who gives us our hope. And he gives us our peace. Third, he says, be of one mind. Be united in those things that are essential. You see, unity demonstrates the fruit of the Holy Spirit in contrast to the division that comes through the flesh. In Philippians 1.27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. The enemy is trying to, to undermine the work of the unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ. There are a lot of people who like to post things on Facebook and social media. If somebody writes something, you've got three or four amateur theologians who want to debate. It happens all the time. You may be writing and saying, you know, God is so good and, and God is blessing. And somebody's going to write and say, well, he doesn't always bless. You know, there are. And then you get to read, you know, Spurgeon Jr. as he gives a, his ideas, you know. That happens to me. It happens to a friend of mine, my name, Tony Clark. All of us know Tony Clark in this church, most of us, if not all. And Tony, Tony will write something, and it's really innocuous. It's, it's harmless. It's innocent. He just writes something, you know, something. And then all of a sudden, all these people start writing to him. It happens all the time. And so I'll, I'll, I'll personal message him, and I'll say, you did it again, didn't you, Tony? Did it again. Started a fight, didn't you? So the other day he posted something, and so I went on his page on purpose. This is terrible. Well, I'm telling you. Anyway, <laughs> but I wrote, and I wrote something about, you know, whatever. I said, you know, Tony, we don't really, because he had said something about church and, and the need that we have for church, and naturally people are writing and saying, we don't need church. So I wrote and said to him, well, you know, Tony, you, your, your theologians are out uh, right now and teaching you things you don't know. I said, uh, so now let the trolls arise. 
you know, because whatever I wrote, I was waiting for some troll to, to tell me where I'm wrong. You know, because they do that all the time. They've got nothing else to do except to buy the body of Christ. They've got nothing else to do except sow seeds of discord. And then we wonder, and I, I, I told Tony this, I said, and we wonder why people don't want to spend time with Christians. They're so mean-spirited, so argumentative, so self-righteous. It's just, who'd want to be with, with that? I had that in the world. Why would I want to be in a church filled with that, right? So Paul has to exhort us. And he says, you need to be at peace. You need to be at one mind, united in the essentials. And then he says, live at peace. Peace is a contentment that results in being right with God and right with one another. And in rejecting the divisive false teachers, you can live at peace with one another. And that's something they needed to decide to do. In Romans 14, verse 19, he said, let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith we may build one another up, we may edify another. And finally, he says, verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When I first got saved, I liked that one because I thought that meant I could go and kiss a little hippie girl, Jesus freak girl, because I said it. Hey, look at I want to be a Bible-believing man, baby. Get over here. <laughs> well, it's speaking about outward show of affection. Have an outward show of affection. During that time, they would greet one another, and there's still customs, still, still people who do that to this day. I bet you almost everyone, if not every one of us, you see a relative, somebody you know very well, you, you give them a kiss of greeting. We do that. Our culture does that. Uh, American culture, very many people are very warm that way, and they do that. It's just part, that's what it's talking about. It's showing affection. Be open in your affection. Don't hide it from somebody. And so greet one another with a holy kiss because that's a demonstration of love and unity. Francis Schaeffer, a, a great intellectual uh, early in my Christian life, uh, he died of cancer, but Francis Schaeffer wrote, Love and the unity it attests to is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. It's the mark of love. To greet one another is to show the affection that family has for one another. He says, all the saints, in verse 13, all the saints greet you. When he says all the saints, he's more than likely speaking of the church in Macedonia, possibly Philippi, how they love them. It's simply one church revealing love for other believers. And then he closes with verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because God's grace through Jesus banishes all self-assertiveness. The love of God puts jealousy and anger to flight. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit leaves no room for division or schism because the Holy Spirit empowers us and the Holy Spirit unites us. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all.
Amen. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.